Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Hold My Dream, where we navigate the news and politics with a chaser of civility. I'm your host, Jen, inviting you to grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and imagine with us how to create a new American identity together. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink and Counterweight podcast with my co-host, David Bernstein. Today, we have Michael David Cobb Bowen. (laughs) Mike is um, the founder of the Conservative Brotherhood, Rights Universal, co-founder of Free Black Thought. We know Mike well through Free Black Thought, where we've coordinated with him on several things. And we're going to talk about all that. But before we do... Mike, you know it's the Hold My Drink podcast, and it is Friday evening. What did you bring for this conversation? Yes. I brought my favorite, Nika Coffee Whiskey. Ooh. Well, that sounds good. That sounds really good. Yeah, I might have to try that. Yeah. It's really good. Nika Coffee Whiskey. I'm, I'm actually writing that down. You know, there's another whiskey that I like. Remember, David, is the peanut butter whiskey, peanut butter cup mm. whiskey. Yeah, but you're not really a whiskey drinker. What are you drinking today, David? I'm actually drinking scotch on the yeah. rocks. So, uh, yeah, I guess I am a whiskey drinker. <laughs> okay, all right, scotch. You know, I, I don't know. It can't I guess... be just scotch. It's got to be some specific kind of scotch. It's like Glenlivet 17, I think. Okay. All right, you're fancy. Mm-hmm. Well, I said it was a dry January, but the weekends I decided don't count. So I've got just Pinot Noir, but look at my glass. Like I'm already ready for, I kind of got depressed after Christmas. I let it. And, and so now I'm like celebrating every single holiday. So I'm already ready for Valentine's day. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> All right, so so David, um, I'm Michael. I was, I was looking at David, Michael David Cobb. You've got a very long name there, by the way, Mike. It was longer than me for many years. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> um, but I know you as Mike. So Mike, tell me about the you start you founded. I, I mentioned already the organizations that you founded: the Conservative Brotherhood, Rights Universal, and Free Black Thought. Like, start at kind of at the beginning on who you are and how you came to your certain viewpoints and what you, why you started these organizations. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, well, um, I'm, um, I, I, I sometimes I say that I'm a half black nationalist, half Catholic, and uh, <clears throat> half something else, but I forgot what it was. I haven't used that one in a while. But uh, my, my, my father is a Connecticut Yankee, uh, and my mother is uh, a New Orleans Catholic. And uh, he's Episcopalian, and he was also in the Marine Corps. And then my mother is kind of a born-again Christian. Uh, so I grew up in Southern California. I'm the oldest of five kids. And uh, we had one of those crazy houses where everything's happening all the time, and it's just my dad would call out names and he's like, which one are you? Um, uh, but it was definitely a busy house. And my dad was, um, I would not say typical, but more typical of, of those radicals that you would expect uh, from the 60s. Uh, so he's a, he was a bona fide, uh, hardcore black nationalist. Uh, he was originally a separatist, 
so we believed that we were going to leave uh, the United States and go live in uh, West Africa. And uh, I have an uncle who was uh, originally in the Peace Corps. So we, uh, you know, spoke French. Uh, my father began to teach me how to speak Swahili uh, because we were going to have to leave this place. Um, that turned around. Uh, you know, we found out the FBI was tapping our telephone. And he says, you know, I'm a family man first. So I'm going to have to quit this radical stuff. And he got into public health. Uh, so both of my parents were sociologists by trade and, and by education. Uh, and of course, as social workers, their primary job is to make sure families work. And so uh, I definitely come from one of those completely functional families. Uh, and that's not only my immediate family, but, but one across, across the board. Uh, and we're still all very close. Uh, and, and, and I've always had those uh, models of success for me. And I was a little, you know, prodigious, prodigious smart ass as a kid. Uh, but I had that particular difference, which was I was born when everybody was called a Negro. And then my dad was part of the things that said, we're going to do black consciousness. And so you're going to be black. Uh, and so we celebrated Kwanzaa. We were part of the original uh, Kwanzaa. And my dad had uh, uh, founded the Institute for Black Studies, uh, as well as the Redwood Theater Group. And so we were more uh, what, what is now called a cultural nationalist, uh, because again, uh, with that background uh, and having been in the Marine Corps, he knew the alternative uh, to peace and it scared the pants off him. Uh, and he said, I, I don't wanna raise my kids in that kind of environment. Uh, so we were, we were big on culture and language and reading, and he's got all kinds of books uh, that, I've, that I've inherited. And, and uh, growing up in Los Angeles was a, as you would expect, a, a big multicultural thing. A lot of people forget that uh, the Crenshaw community is, is, is a lot of uh, Japanese uh, first and second generation there. And so we would go to the Nisei Carnival uh, on Crenshaw and Crenshaw Square that, that burned down during the riots, but has been rebuilt. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had Japanese friends and kids in, in my, in my uh, school. Uh, so I went to public school for elementary. I went to a Catholic middle school and went to an advanced prep school uh, in, in L.A. And I was always kind of a moralist. I, I had this different set of ethics growing up. And then since my mother was Catholic, and every, every Catholic is a lapsed Catholic of some sort, uh, and she ended up going to a uh, Pentecostal church. And my dad reverted from his secularness to uh, Episcopalianism. Uh, and so I had all kinds of, I had a, a multi-religious family myself. And then I had to make my own choice. Uh, so uh, it was weird going to Catholic school and not being Catholic and learning the catechism along with the kids who got to go to first communion and I don't, get to go to First Communion or anything like that. Uh, and I ultimately went to a Jesuit high school, chose Episcopalianism uh, because it was kind of um, the, the, the very uh, kind of upscale white liberal church that you would expect. Uh, and I was like, oh, these guys actually do send money to Africa for a printing press. Uh, and so that was kind of gratifying. Uh, so I grew up obviously very uh, radical left, 
not, but, but I didn't take it so seriously as I was always into science. I, I read a lot of science fiction. I read, uh, you know, 2001 when I was in the fifth grade. Uh, so I got into Heinlein and all of that stuff. Starman Jones. I read all the Nancy Drew books, all the Hardy Boys. Uh, I liked all of the uh, Samuel Clemens books, Mark Twain. Uh, and so like my dad, I was a big reader. Uh, and uh, so I just grew up just a, 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 a smart kid, a big brother, and with a different upbringing that was different enough for me to say, hey, there's, there's a different way to do things. Uh, let's, let's find out why. And, and I think we were, we were all kind of evangelistic about black culture and, and, and black thought uh, as young people. And we were an unusual family. Uh, so I would always, you know, well, why don't you do this? And how come you don't do this? And we gave up Christmas to celebrate Kwanzaa. How come you guys just don't even think about that? And so I've always kind of had this central kind of ethical core uh, that, that followed me uh, along with the insatiable curiosity to find out what other people were thinking uh, because I seem so different uh, than everybody else. Uh, so that that's kind of what set me up for, for everything. So Mike, you're, um, you, you founded Free Black Thought. What about the current discourse around race and racism mm -hmm. would lead you in that direction? What needed to be freed? Yes. Uh, well, of course, as you can imagine, I was, you know, this bona fide cultural nationalist who had family that actually lived in Africa. And so I was authentic. I was the real deal. And my dad, you could point to him and, you know, he was talking to, you know, all the heads in the chatting classes of, of, of the 60s. And he was published uh, in his essays. And so I kind of inherited the mantle of the talented 10th. So, you know, you're the, the educated class of black people who are going to lead us uh, through whatever it is, the revolution, uh, 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 the education. And so I kind of took that for granted for most of my life. Uh, and then when I finally got to college, I realized that I wasn't the one. You know, I grew up thinking I was Neo. I was the one and everybody should follow me. And, and when I actually got into campus leadership, uh, I discovered that black unity just doesn't work because actually there are multiple black factions on campus or anywhere else uh, that want to do it their way. Like we struggled a lot, um, you know, understanding there's some Marxist bent uh, to, to black left liberalism of the 60s of with the black church. The black church wants to put Jesus as the head and we want to put economic empowerment as the head. Uh, so, so those two were never really reconciled. Uh, and then within that, my own mother was a Catholic, then changed to uh, the, the uh, uh, Pentecostal. And my dad went from secular to, to being uh, Episcopalian. So that wasn't even reconciled. So we have all of these differences, but there would be this putative black leader or black leaders who are supposed to speak for everybody. And it was tough enough just to get our own neighbors uh, to come to the poetry workshops and stuff that we, we put on. 
so there was there was a role for us, uh, you know, being out ahead of of something, being progressive within the black community. But you kind of realize that the racial unity is not going to work, and and there's no better way to learn that than when you try to be the black leaders of everything, and you and you end up suppressing the dissent, and you end up taking advantage of your privileges, and you end up you know dismissing with an especial vehemence those who are uh, don't have ability to the cause, uh, and, and and I personally. You know, worked in the Rainbow Coalition, and and I met Jesse Jackson many times. And then when I became a student leader, uh, he kind of crashed one of our one of our meetings and started asking for money uh, from students. And so I have recognized the hard way uh, what happens when you try to put all, all all the black folks into one bucket. And and I would add one more thing: uh, when I got into student government on this <clears throat> campus where there we were about, I don't know, 6% black, if that much, uh, you know, uh, maybe 10, I don't know. But there were at least a dozen black clubs and organizations, including fraternities and sororities. And I got, uh, I was a school of engineering, computer science finance chair. So I sat on the committee where they dole out the money to the various student organizations. And it was always suggested, kind of perennially, well, why don't you just have one black organization? Because per capita, you guys are getting more money than, than everybody else. Uh, why not just have one black organization? We could fund that organization and then be done with it. And that, of course, would constrain our ability to pursue our different agendas. Uh, so, duh, black unity doesn't work. And I came out of college with that very clear in my mind. Uh, and, and yet there's still people who are jumping to try to catch the reins of black leadership and lead the country into a particular uh, direction. And it, it just doesn't work. It's impractical and it's, 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 it's a bad idea. You know, that's, <clears throat> that's interesting because I see <clears throat> that while there's not this, I mean, of course, there's some fringe white unity groups or whatnot, but the way that people now are assuming, particularly in this new era where like diversity training and whatnot, and it, people are looking at whiteness as this monolithic whole and attributing values to whiteness. And I'm like, hmm, that's, I'm sorry, that, that, like, that's, that's not me. And so I think that we're doing, we've kind of, switch gears and now we're we're doing the same thing um and and we're we're not changing the game we're just switching out the sides i mean that's mm -hmm. that, that's how i kind of related to what you just said do you what do you think yeah. about that do you see that as well yeah i do um and and i think we're we're more color struck than we were 10 years ago and 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 basically you have to and it worked for me because, uh, you know, as a as an IT professional, uh, uh, always putting logic into language. Uh, I think philosophically as well. And really, the question is something that we don't use the term very often here in the states, but they do use it in the UK, of racialism, rather than just racism, it's racialism. 
And racialism says there are these races uh, and, and it's like a pizza pie. It's a zero sum. Every race has a certain essence and you may not make anything of it, but you don't question it. You know, if you if you forget to say what somebody's race is, you're 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 forgetting a real important part of that person. And if you accept that premise of race, whether you think it's real or socially constructed or anything, you're a racialist because you're saying race always matters and you can't leave it out. And so that's just like saying, okay, I'm playing Monopoly. You can change the rules, but you know, whatever happens when you get to free parking, you can change those rules to be whatever you want, but you're still playing Monopoly. And there still has to be a winner race and a loser race and you're still racing around the same block. So there's no way out of that so long as you are a racialist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a good point, the racialist, yeah. Yeah, we have a, um, we have a friend, uh, Sheena Mason, who's been on this podcast, who has this idea of the, a theory of racelessness. And it seems that it's a post-racial idea that, you know, um, that a lot of what we talk about when we say race is actually culture. And, um, and she believes that the, the racial language actually continues to promote racism. And, and, mm -hmm. her, and her definition of racism is not just racism against blacks, but a kind of like racialized thinking that, um, that keeps us trapped in this, this negative paradigm. What, what is your view on that yeah. whole theory? Do you think we're, it's time for a post-racial outlook? Yes, I mean I do. I agree. We've published uh, Dr. Mason, and 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 uh, I follow her on Twitter, uh, and I think it's a great idea. Uh, and and her approach to it is is recycling a good idea that's been a good idea for a very long time. Uh, and it's all too easy to assign a, a racial bucket to culture. And you can say that this is black culture. And a lot of people say that, uh, but, but people are just racializing that because that's where we get into the whole mess of cultural appropriation. Well, you're the wrong race to celebrate that culture. Uh, and and, and that, that, that's, that's, I hate to use the word problematic, but it's a contradiction. Uh, culture is a winning way um, to, to get through society. They're, they're like, not cheat codes, but they're, they're lessons, best practices. And, and they're going to be very varied and they're going to be uh, very specific to individuals. So for example, everybody in my family, my immediate family loves the Princess Bride. Now, last time I checked, I don't think there's a black person in the Princess Bride. And nobody in my family loves anything by Tyler Perry. And those are mostly black, Cast. So are we appropriating something or are we just expressing a love for a particular kind of culture? And as, as long as you're wanting to tie a cultural expression to a race, then you're back playing the same racial game. I just heard um, a lecture that Orlando Patterson, the great Harvard sociologist from Jamaica, gave I think it must have been 2018 on culture and culture as an explanatory factor 
for disparity in society. Now, unlike, the, the way that, that he looks at it is that there are these two camps. One is a camp that denies the effect of culture that says structure is everything, that systemic racism is the only reason why there's disparity. And you see that in the sort of Ibram X. Kendi view, but it's been yeah. around for a long time. Um, and then sort of the other side of it that and maybe you could attribute this to a John McWhorter that says there is a distinct black culture that does cause some of the disparity in, um, in society. Patterson's view seems much more nuanced to me. And I just wanted to sort of bounce it off your view. He argues that there's well, it's it's incorrect to talk about quote unquote black culture or white culture. There are cultures. There, in fact, yes. even within the inner city, there's a multiplicity of cultures. You know, you have a very strong core of church going black folks who live in the inner city, who um, in no way, shape, or form are involved in um, you know in in um, in the activities that are likely to get them arrested or anything else. I mean, that in other words, mm -hmm. all those groups. Who have distinct cultures live together, and that, but that culture still, that that subculture of some people um, might explain part of what we're we're seeing in disparity. What what is your view on on all of that? The effects of culture. Well, 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 as my mother would say, would somebody will say, "Oh, there goes your people." She said, "I didn't raise them." Uh, and 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 we know, uh, and it's re it's reasonable, of course to think of class and to think of, you know, your educational background and, yes. and what you find to be interesting of culture. I have a little story. Like when I went to, uh, to grab my fiance, uh, I was living on the East coast and we had to drive all the way from the West coast back to her hometown of Detroit in a two seat Nissan Pulsar with a cat in the back. Um, and, and we got to her mom's house. And first thing, of course, I go in someone's house, I look at their bookshelf. And she had a Negro encyclopedia immediately in the post-war period. So I pick it up and I start reading. And I find out that somewhere around you know, the late 40s, it was taken with great deal of pride that the Negro men, about 40% of us could drive a truck. And that was proof that we were improving in America. And I said, oh my goodness, we go back to the time when our intelligence was doubted so much that we were put in segregated troops because they didn't think we were smart enough to drive a stick shift. Uh, but we proved that we could do that. Wow, aren't we great? And, and those kinds of proofs, uh, they change every decade. Every decade it's, well, what do you people want? Or a black man can't do this. And then it happens, it gets done, and the goalpost gets shift, shifted. So the culture changes. Uh, what is considered important uh, in terms of, you know, your authenticness changes uh, and class changes. You know, in 1960, there were about 20 million Negroes. Uh, they were all called Negroes, and most of them lived in poverty. And so it, it could be very easy for anyone to guess the problem with the Negro today is he lives in poverty. So let's have a war on poverty. And then, uh, you know, by the turn of the century, there were 38 million, and most of them are in, in middle class. And so if you're still thinking about what the problem was, 
then you're reverting back to the Negro problem. Uh, and, and now where we have, you know, police chiefs and mayors where you don't think twice about them being black, but then we, we can still come up with this idea that police forces are all racist uh, systematically. Uh, so the systemic racism doesn't work very well because people are always guessing about where that systematic racism is taking place. Uh, whereas when you talk about culture, you're like, well, I know this guy across the street from me doesn't want to work hard or doesn't uh, go to church or drinks to excess or never leaves the house without a suit and a hat on and never curses. So you know the culture within your black neighborhood and who's who, who believes what and who you allow to play with who others' children, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And the fact of the matter is, Black America has become a lot more diverse. We, we talk about the old school, like when everybody said, you got to be home when the lights come on and everybody's dad had the, the permission to whip you if you misbehave. And it's not like that anymore. And, 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 and neighborhoods that used to be predominantly black are no longer predominantly black, especially here in Los Angeles. So the culture is fluid and you can't reduce it to race and you have to deal with a lot of culture. Uh, and and, and it's, it's tough. I, I think it's especially tough on people like Kendi who want to reduce everything to something that can be explained. And that makes him the black leader. And, and that he's, he's just playing that old game because we could all be unified under Kendi if we would just accept his premises and his arguments and then we would be one strong unified black people that nobody could stop us. <laughs> You, so you you use the term systemic racism, but you said you know it can be it can be hard to pin down. But do you believe I have? I guess I have two questions. Do you believe there is systemic racism in America? And the second question is: Do you believe America is systemically racist? I I believe that you can identify racism where it is, and I don't think people have enough discipline to do that. I think. If you ask the average person who accepts the premise of systemic racism being the primary cause of where black people are today, as compared to white, and then you're just playing this comparison game, none of them will say, well, under Obama Department of Justice, we identified the number one systemic racists in America. And, and back when I did the race man thing, we went through all kinds of uh, stuff like that. For example, one of them was Eddie Bauer. And Eddie Bauer was the big racist of the day because they would have their security guys follow you around the store. Uh, and they had something called non-urban dictates. And everybody jumped on the fact that Eddie Bauer was uh, the racist. Uh, and then, you know, nobody cares to think about that anymore. Uh, not long ago, we went through some kerfuffle at a Starbucks in Philadelphia. So Starbucks was the racist place. Uh, and, and what we do is we select, you know, a panoply of victims from Trayvon Martin to Amadou Diallo to, uh, you know, Michael Brown. And, and we go through this cycle all the time and we're focusing on uh, a segment of society that has a hard time, no doubt. 
but that's not necessarily representative of all African American. I mean, I've been pulled over by cops 27 times before I was 30. I counted them. And and I know people, you know, you can say Michael Jordan was in first class and they refused to give him his champagne. Uh, and and there are people who actually live in those situations and there's people who can are are, are totally horrified by those same situations. I'll give you an example. I lived in LA in Crenshaw and there were two special buses that went up and down Crenshaw on a periodic basis. One of them went downtown to the jail and the other one went to Inglewood to the track. And I never got on either one of those buses and I would just wait for the regular Crenshaw bus to go by and I would look and see who are the people who are going to the jail. And I, I never had that experience. So there are people, there are families in America that have to deal with the fact that one of their loved ones is incarcerated and they have to visit them. And that's real. Nobody can, can doubt that. But that's not everybody. Everybody who's sitting on that bus stop in the black neighborhood is not trying to go to the horse track to bet money. Some of them are going to church. Some of them are going to the jail. Most of them are not. And so the question is, you know, what can we do to fix a problem? Because it's a problem, whether you're black or white or anything, if you have a family member in jail. It's a problem if you have a gambling problem. Why racialize any of that? Because what works for you should work for me. David, I, I feel like you've got other questions in regards to, I know you and in, in <clears throat> criminal justice and stuff like that. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cede the floor for, I feel like you've got some thoughtful questions forthcoming. Okay, sure, sure. <laughs> then, then since you mentioned it, criminal justice reform, you know, it is a, or the criminal justice system, you know, it is a place where you still see some significant disparities. There's over 2 million uh, Americans that are um, incarcerated, um, and uh, there is a significant portion, out of proportion to their numbers, are black. Now, you could say that perhaps black people commit, on average, more crime, and that may not be false. But at the same time, it seems like there are drug laws in place, especially that hold uh, black people to a higher standard in that way than than others. In other words, drugs that are sometimes associated with with uh, Black folks are, rather than white folks who also are addicted to drugs or use drugs or sell drugs, are are prosecuted more harshly than than drugs that are used by white folks. And so, therefore, you're seeing still uh, traces of systemic racism, if not outright systemic racism, in our in our criminal justice system. What is your feeling about that whole discussion? Where, where are you on that? Well, I think. You know, you can racialize crime, you can racialize poverty, and there's, there's, there's a, 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 a German cat named Gödel who came up with something called the incompleteness theorem that we think about a lot uh, when we're building systems in, in, in the computer science business. And it says, whatever your system is going to be, it can either be complete or it can be without contradiction. You can't have both. So if you're going to talk about completely racializing the criminal justice system, 
then you're going to have contradictions. You're going to have double standard. If, if you tell the policeman, take down the race of the person that you're arresting. If you tell the judge, apply this rule to the sentence by race or just count by race, then you're inevitably going to have a double standard. So the question is, and, and I, I think it's very hard for Americans to get away from the idea that they're doing something extra special if they do it for black people, uh, rather than having something that's universally applicable. Uh, so again, you can, you can definitely go down that way and count the noses, but you're not gonna have something universal. So it's easy for me to just say, well, you know, part of my family lives in France. France does it another way. And France is not anywhere near as racial historically as America is. And so, you know, if it gets so bad, maybe I'll just go live in France uh, because I can expect uh, that they'll live up to that, you know, if I speak the language well enough. Uh, so I think we're doing a little bit too much navel gazing and the navel gazing gets racialized and we think we're doing something, but it's racial, it's on the same monopoly board and we're not being universal. So, so the whole idea of America being exceptional uh, just loses when we start racializing everything because we'll inevitably have contradictions. Uh, and these are the contradictions that we see happening uh, among the progressive left where they're eating themselves alive uh, because they're counting race, they're counting gender, they're counting sexual preference. And you basically ultimately have to decide when you're putting together a system of laws that you are going to either have no regard for persons or special regard for persons. And we know that these rules change. Over the decades, what's special about black people in 1940? Oh, they can drive a stick. Well, what's special about black people in the 80s? Well, they're in gangs and they shoot each other. Well, what's special about black people now? And well, they get shot by cops. And so every time we try to get a generation to say, this is what's special about your race and your generation, and here are all the litany of problems that we've had before, you gotta racialize. And then you have to have a theme house in the university and you have to have this racial studies and that racial studies. And if you're ever gonna codify it in law, you're gonna have to make deal with those contradictions. Or the other way is you can just say, we're gonna be incomplete. We're not gonna know everything about every race. We're not gonna document everything in our social studies. We're gonna reduce our dimensionality. We're not gonna look about these, these attributes. We're not gonna to try to control for anything. We're just gonna just try to have one rule. And I bet you, you'll have more Christians at the end of the day because black Christians don't call themselves black Christians. They may go to a church in their neighborhood, which has been a black neighborhood forever, but they don't say, Jesus said to the black man, no, he said it for all men. And presumably uh, the founders of our nation said it for all men. And so we can go with the universal and leave out some details, but you'll be consistent. I've got a, <clears throat> a theory on criminal justice. David, you haven't heard this before, so I'm interested to hear. This is a bit aside, but AI 
you know, um, scares me a little bit and how it's coming over, you know, so many of our, so much of our economy. But here's, I feel like if AI could take over one area, it could take over some of the criminal justice system where you literally plug in, you know, the crime, you know, how many crimes have been done in the past, et cetera. And literally there's no lawyers. It doesn't matter if you're rich, you're poor, you're whatever. You tag in your name, Jennifer Richmond, you know, she's done this many prior crimes and the sentence comes out. That's how I think you could set, solve the criminal justice system. Like there's no people. And of course, for big crimes and, you know, like murders or whatnot, but yeah, for your little stuff where it's like clearly you shoplifted or clearly you sold drugs, like get your sentence, put, put it in the machine, your sentence comes out. <laughs> I mean, is that, is that a crazy idea for, for trying to, um, what's the word I want to use, you know, ad address the criminal justice problem? I think something like that is inevitable because that's an attractive idea for people like me who are coders. Uh, on the other hand, it ought to scare you because everybody who gets to code doesn't get to be a project manager at Microsoft. And so you have to think about what's the name of the corporation, the multi-billion dollar corporation that sells the most AI? Because we already don't trust Elon Musk, you know, and he's done, he's, he's done almost what's miraculous. Uh, and, and we don't, we don't trust uh, Mr. Teal, uh, uh, although his stuff is doing very well for me. Thank you, Palantir. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I agree that there is something like that. And, and we, part of the problem is we don't trust each other enough to be consistent. Uh, you know, if you've never met a judge in your life, and you don't understand why the, the attorneys that they work with trust them as a judge, as a jurist, you probably don't know anybody who's that fair, who's that even-handed. Uh, and we've kind of commercialized this. It's Judge Judy. Um, but most of us don't get to know those people who are really the backbone of the justice system. We, and we talk about police almost to the exclusion of prosecutors and defense attorneys. And we don't really have much transparency into that part, a very important part of our democracy. So me, I'm a data guy. I would love to, to show this is what's happened to all of the, uh, the wobblers in California since we changed the law so that anything less than grand theft cannot be a felony. So you can do shoplifting for $999 a hundred times and it never will get you in prison. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that I would love to see. And I, and, 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 but, but it doesn't change the fact that you can take 100 dead black, black people shot by police officers and make it appear to be the fate of every young black person. I can't tell you how many times people have asked me, what do you tell your children if they have to deal with the police? I said, well, you know, how do you deal with your Uncle David? He's a cop. Oh, never thought of it that way. You know, again, you, you can take these, these numbers and blow them out of proportion. I think people ought to be judged by people, but we're not, we're not doing very good in the judgment department. 
And, and, and interestingly enough, but, but I think our society is going that way. Because when I was growing up, there was no such thing as a FICO score. If you had a, an idea of how fast a computer calculates your FICO score, looking back at every one of your credit purchases and payments over history, it's less than a second. So you could put on your best suit and shoes and you can walk to the bank and talk to a loan officer. No, you don't get to do that anymore. FICO score. That's what you are. And, and China's kind of showing us the way how to do social credits. I don't think they let you watch Black Mirror in China. Uh, but some of us are going to relent and say, oh, let the computer do it. That ain't good. You're, you're so right, Mike. That's funny. I just have to relay a, a funny, um, a friend of mine who lived in, I lived in China for quite some time. And she was just reminding me just today, so serendipity of how we used to wait in the bars at, for like, there was a certain time, like I think 10 PM that they would uh, play MTV for an hour, you know? Wow. <laughs> so yeah, there's definitely, <laughs> you're right. You're right about that. I hadn't thought about that. And you know, that's why, I, but I, well, I guess I had thought about that in the sense I said, AI kind of scares me, you know? I mean, I, I, there's, there's, there's some good side to it, but then there's that other side that is just could be equally as dehumanizing and mm -hmm. controlling as yeah, anything else. So I got yeah. off, I got totally off topic. Sorry about that, but I'm, you, oh. you know, about AI and, and computers and it's fascinating to me and then how it relates to perhaps how we could solve slash mess up the world more. <laughs> David, did I, I think take I'm optimistic that we'll be smarter about it. I mean, <sighs> Gary Kasparov talks about what happened after Deep Blue, you mm. know, beat him. And, and chess is a new game. And more people are interested in chess than ever. And there was a great Netflix show about it. Was it Queen's Gambit? And people yeah, play chess online. Show. And people do teams where, where a chess computer is part of your team. Uh, and, and that's kind of my particular business. Uh, uh, where you're in business intelligence and you think about where you expect people to be biased and, and where computers are not. Uh, back in the day, a lot of people would run their business by the seat of their pants. And they would just say, oh, well, he's a Rockefeller. He must know what he's doing. And the Rockefellers weren't data-driven. They didn't have any idea, you know, what their P&L was at, at a high level. But at a detail level, nobody knew. Uh, and we just went through in the 90s and early 2000s kind of a revolution in accounting in business um, uh, with, where, where, you know, even 15 years before that, in the late 80s, managers did not touch computers. That's for secretaries, you know. And then along come a couple companies that revolutionized uh, uh, accounting. And now they're saying, oh, well, we'll let we'll let this uh, SAP software tell us how we should do our account. We'll just the computer says. Uh, and so there's been a revolution in accounting and, and how businesses measure their own, their own money. Uh, so they're, they're substantial for, for everything. And as a computer guy, I'm like, yeah, let's computerize the world. Uh, but uh, it's more buggy than you think. You've got both sides of your brain firing. Like you're a philosopher and like a computer scientist. I'm sorry. I like my, 
my brain is split. Like I can only use one part of the brain at a time, but you like, yeah. you, you do it all. I mean, uh, uh, Jack of all trades, I guess. You are. Well, and speaking of that, that, I've got another question for you. So you talked about your, your dad and you talked about mm -hmm. him being in the Marine Corps and yet also being a hardcore black nationalist. And that seems to me, I've got some cognitive dissonance on that. How could mm -hmm. you defend a country that you want to leave. And so maybe that's where you're kind of like you, you, you came in where you can think on so many different sides of the issue. I mean, you were, you, you kind of grew up in that environment, but can you talk a little bit more about that? Cause you, when I, I actually wrote it down, I was like, wait, I, I had to even ask you, did you say your dad was in the Marine Corps and a black nationalist? That doesn't seem to jive. So not, not at the same time. <laughs> plus one, plus one on that question. I was thinking the exact same thing. So good. I'm glad right. you asked. <laughs> Uh, so definitely my dad was a Connecticut, Connecticut Yankee. He grew up in uh, New Haven, Connecticut, in, uh, in, in a housing project uh, that no longer exists called McConaughey Terrace. Uh, and then they went into new public housing, which was integrated. Uh, and, you know, he had a, a Jewish couple on one side and a white couple on another side. And then the next door down was a, an Irish guy who used to pick up a stick and bat stones into the woods every day, a laconic kind of guy. Uh, and he said, well, we didn't think of it as integrated, but it was integrated. And that was public housing in, in the 40s. Uh, and my, my grandfather was um, a house manager at Yale, which meant he basically ran a, a, a fraternity house uh, as the major domo. And so my uh, grandfather, was a, a self-taught man, very proud man, taught himself, you know, uh, I wouldn't say taught himself to read. I used to think that he taught himself Latin and Greek, but I was disabused of that. But he was definitely a big reader uh, and, and, and definitely um, a leader in, in, in his church and knew all the, the Black Episcopalians in New England, pretty much. Uh, he was an elk, he was um, a Shriner, uh, so he was with all those fraternal organizations, uh, kind of a, a kingpin in, in his community. Uh, and so there's this kind of old school shabby gentility uh, that you had uh, in those days. Uh, he worked troop trains. Uh, my grandfather was also uh, in the, the Connecticut National Guard or the Connecticut State Guard. So he had a state issued pistol uh, that, that, that he wore. Uh, and so uh, there, there is a tradition of service and it wasn't looked upon as something crazy. Uh, so when my father got his degree in sociology and there weren't a whole lot of sociologist jobs cause it was a brand new field and he found that he didn't, he didn't have work. Well, he, he, he went to the, the armed forces. Uh, and it wasn't it wasn't considered such a, a, a crazy thing uh, to be an enlist, enlisted man in those days. Uh, I think by the time he got out uh, after I was born, uh, it was a different world in the 60s after his four year hitch uh, from the 50s to the 60s. Uh, and and he didn't particularly love the Marine Corps, but he had that kind of discipline, which I think makes sense uh, again if you if you grow up in New Haven, Connecticut in the shadow of Yale University and you're a very proper family.
and I can't say this without mentioning my my grandmother, who was a very stern uh, and powerful woman from a family of women of that sort. Uh, and her nickname was Miss Madam. And you could see her in her light blue dress, pillbox hat, circle pin, white gloves, white pocketbook. And she could walk in the downtown department stores in New Haven, Connecticut in the 40s because she was just proper. And that's how a lady behaved. And, uh, you know, I, I got it from them, slapped on the hands for, for not being formally correct, polite, etc. cetera. Uh, so there was a, a, a tighter lid on society in those days. And my family was on the inside of that polite society. Uh, and that, uh, that when it didn't fulfill its promise, and my dad didn't get into Yale, then he started to, to grumble. Uh, but then again, he grumbled in the way that you would expect. He's writing fiery letters to publications. He's arguing you know, the case as people do uh, these days in a very impassioned way. And he says, you know, maybe we'll have a new uh, uh, idea. And, and like many people of these days, he was captured by the idea of, of a Marxist revolution. Uh, and that's gonna change the world and, and we're going into a new era. And certainly the Negro had to go from being Negro to black. So it was, uh, you know, he was in his 20s. Of course, that's very appealing to him. Uh, and, but, but that didn't change the fact that he loved literature. He loved poetry. Uh, when he had a chance to do his institute, it was writing. It was never about marching in the streets. It was never about being a radical. It was about expecting that the United States would accept real criticism uh, 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 that, that, that you would expect a man of letters to do. So he certainly put down his sword and shield uh, down by the riverside and studied war no more because uh, he knew he was a marksman. He knew what would happen if, if it came down to, to, to war in the streets. It, it would be horrible. Uh, and so as a black nationalist, I think that's that's just part of the exceptionalism uh, of America, where anybody can think uh, we're going to change the whole government, we're change the whole society. Uh, I think if you grew up in England, you you'd feel that way. You know, I I don't think if you grew up in France, you necessarily think that way. But I think in America, you think, okay, we're going to change the whole system, and and you can be that kind of radical. What's what's we're facing this sort of stifling discourse now that you might call wokeness, you might call mm -hmm. critical yeah. social justice. What do we do about this? What well, do we you know, do to I, create free I, thought, let alone free black thought? How do we how do we value free thought in society? Well, first I think it's 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 we should we should emphasize black diversity. And that that's a phrase you almost never hear is black diversity. You know, it was considered a big deal when Mahalia Jackson sung uh, in the nation's capital and all the cameras were on her. People don't know who Mahalia Jackson is now. And, and I don't think they care. And so if you think about African-American contributions to music, well, there's R&B, there's funk, there's hip hop, there's jazz, there's gospel, 
you know, which which music are we talking about? Most people don't have libraries that cover all of that. Uh, you, you, you pick your genre and you're kind of defined by that. I forgot to say the blues. Um, so just just there is is black diversity. And most people I didn't know until I got in college that there were four major black fraternities. Uh, and I pledged Alpha, uh, Alpha Phi Alpha, which started in uh, 1906. So there's a hundred year old black fraternity plus hundred plus going on 120 years of black college men. And, and you, you almost can't get that conversation going outside of very specific circles. Um, and these are real serious cultural investments uh, that, that we have to have, that we have to recognize. And so we're fortunate at Free Black Thought is that we just have so much history uh, to draw from, so many opinions over generations and generations about what's best for uh, black folks. And I think one of the things that we don't do often enough is look towards the future. There's so many of these people are just looking backwards and they're trying to be a part of slavery or they're trying to be a part of Jim Crow. And they're trying to say, that's, that's, you know, that's my lived experience. It, it, but everybody learns outside of their own family. They learn what their culture is supposed to be. And people adopt this and they adopt it to, to varying degrees. And I think we are definitely looking at a generation of black and white academics who were, who were you know, formed at a particular time in our country's history where my generation was saying, pay attention to the black experience. We're gonna change everything. You know, if you, if you think back to Spike Lee and Public Enemy, uh, the New Jack Swing uh, in, in the late 80s and getting on MTV and Yo! MTV Raps, we were getting into major media in a big way, in a new way. You know, just prior to that, you had all these black cast movies with, with the same, you know, with the same three or four people. Uh, and, and we had, uh, you think about the gap between the Brady Bunch and the Cosby Show, where we were just saying, hey, we're, we're middle class too. And, 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 and I can remember the first time I watched the Cosby Show, I was like, oh, okay, there's something that approaches what my family is like. How many years has my family been like that, but never been on TV? And so again, there was a, a period where we were all saying, pay attention to me, pay attention to us. Pay attention to the black uh, experience, and especially those the most gifted among us took our places in in universities, and and ran with it, and 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 a lot of it I have to say is self serving, because you say if black people like me make it, then we're all we're all good, you know. We could point to Michael Jordan and we say, oh look, Michael Jordan, so we're all good, uh, and and so. There has been an extraordinary focus on, on black folks, um, some of which is, is well-deserved, but some of which is, is kind of overkill. Uh, I, I think about it this way. Almost nobody talks about the fact that the United States of America completely redistricted it to itself. 
so that you could have black people in Congress. And, and we just completely redid our, our, our political system uh, of democracy. And, and we talk about voting rights today. We're never going to do anything approaching what we did to create minority, major, majority minority districts. Okay. And, and, and you look at Lonnie Guineer, uh, the late Lonnie Guineer talked a lot about that, of how we just completely redid our uh, congressional district. That's never going to happen again. All right. We've kind of had the spotlight for a long time and we, we've been productive and we led the way for a lot of other folks to, to take chances. Uh, but the black and white thing is so old and played out. It's kind of like, we gotta get past that. We gotta be happy being Americans. Gotta be happy sharing the culture that we do. Uh, and if we can't do that, well, it's just gonna be another generation of kids that say, Everything they taught me was a lie. Uh, and, and what you're saying sounds to me, you know, about something that you're uh, a, a phrase that your co-founder of Free Black Thought, Eric Thought, uh, Eric Smith said, um, is like the history that you're talking about. Your history, because it doesn't fit the current narrative, you're erased and replaced. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I. I remember going to college and we have this phrase called hoteps and hoteps are out there saying, cause this is what they were saying in the eighties and nineties that the glorious land of Kemet was where Africans came from. And we're using these Egyptian things. And everybody remembers that uh, video by Michael Jackson, you remember the time. And that was a big deal. You know, everybody's kind of dancing like that. And, and wearing the kente cloth. And there was this Afrocentric revolution uh, that was supposed to put you know, black culture front and center and say that we were the originators of science and technology uh, and the pyramids and all those mysteries. And the hoteps got out there and they had their moment. They, they sold their 50 page books. And then you know now nobody talks about Malefi Asante anymore. He's, he's, he's old news. Uh, so there's always going to be people recycling this stuff, uh, or as we used to say, trying to make a dollar out of 15 cents. And I, that, that, that's, ain't that America? <laughs> yeah, ain't that America? Mike, it's been such a, a pleasure to, to get your history. You've got such a, an awesome backstory, an interesting backstory. So I hope that we can like explore that again. Yeah. Thanks so much, and, Mike. And, and so I can have more than one glass, I'll really get loose. <laughs> uh, we're gonna make it two hours next time and I'll feel too. Better yet in person. To. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Anytime. You got my email and, and all my particulars are down in the description, as they say. So you can follow me at MDC Bowen. Uh, or uh, mdcbowen.substack.com and of course anything and everything associated with free black thought to thought diversity the yeah, truth will set you free thought, yes exactly free thought your diversity. mind <laughs> all I'm right to free your mind <laughs> <laughs> cheers y'all have a good weekend take care hey take See care later, good talking everybody. to you guys all right you, you too bye-bye bye-bye
Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes for links to source material and to our website where you can find what each of us is reading every week. Different news with different views. If you have a topic that you would like us to explore, drop us a line. And join us next week as we say hold my drink and the conversation gets real.